This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him in their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We've talked the last three weeks now about reimagining a post-quarantine church and taking some looks at uh, different ways of doing things. Because so often, when uh, whenever we try to do anything new or whenever we're faced with doing something differently in the church in terms of operation, not in terms of liturgy, uh, we look at, uh, at the person proposing such a change and, and say, but this way, the old way, is the way we've always done it. And so there is a a really strong need for us to break out of that idea because Jesus even says of, of himself, behold, I am doing a new thing. Behold, I make all things new, right? So there is uh, a, an eternal creativity that is warranted specifically when we're faced with, uh, with new challenges to take a look and say, okay, this is the way that in certain times and places we operated and and those means of operation by themselves uh, are not sacred. They're, 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 they were opportunities and tools and ways that we responded to the culture in which we lived at the time. And as that culture shifts, so our approaches need to shift as well. However, the same Jesus who says, behold, I make all things new, behold, I'm doing a new thing, is the same Jesus who says uh, that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so there is also, as we reimagine, we need to make sure that we are reimagining the right things, that we're reimagining those those modes of operation and not the tradition, the sacred tradition, capital T, uh, that that we rely on the wisdom of the church to um, to look forward into new challenges. So even as we in the last three weeks have been really focused in on what are some things that are different and that are going to be different and that might be different forever, we also need to look back and say, how has the church handled these kinds of things in the past? Now, if you've been around the show for a while, you know that the name Outside the Walls has this same kind of connotation that we have to be a church that breaks out of boxes. We go outside the walls. We don't sit inside our insular places and become uh, internally focused because we are a missional church. We are a church that is called by Jesus to go out into all the world and make disciples. Um, This is a a big deal. We are, as as we say in in the opening of the show, this is a show for missionary disciples. You and me by virtue of our baptism and our confirmation, are called and commissioned to be disciples who go and make disciples. So we have to go outside the walls. But at the same token, we have to be grounded in our faith, grounded in our history. And so the name also comes from that beautiful basilica in Rome, uh, St. Paul Outside the Walls. And the reason that we we picked that specific Basilica as the icon, as it were, of of our tradition is that over the archways inside, close to the ceiling, are 
mosaics of each and every pope, just kind of like a portrait of each pope, all the way from Peter, all the way to Francis. Uh, and, and so it is indicative of that unbroken line of our history and our tradition. So, in that same way, as we are reimagining a post-quarantine church, we have to say, how has the church handled this in the past? There might, they're not going to be direct correlations. It's not going to be, okay, now let's whole, whole hog adopt the thing that they did and use the language that they used and et cetera, so forth. But there's so much wisdom to be gleaned from the fathers. And this was something that I never had in the traditions of my youth. We never talked about the church fathers. And so when I became a Catholic, that was one of the things that so impressed me about some of my friends and my colleagues is that they could quote the church fathers like I could quote scripture. And I didn't even know where to begin or how to start that. And over the intervening years, we've talked about a couple of different places that are really good places to start. One of those is the breviary. Uh, we each week on the show have this passage that we read out most often out of the breviary from a father of the church or a doctor of the church or a document of the church. And so that's a great way to kind of build up a little bit of, of knowledge in that way. Uh, another way we talk about each week on the show is verbum. Verbum.com, you can get a 30-day free trial and try it out, see what you think. Uh, it's a wonderful program that has so much power to cross-reference Scripture with uh, with all of your your library that you would happen to have. So for me, when I read Verbum, I have Scripture open, and, I, and it tells me all the places that the church fathers have referenced that work, and I can go and explore and dig into what it is that the fathers are saying. Uh, and so try out the 30-day trial, see what you think about it. Um, if you like it, you can get into one of their uh, their packaged libraries. Uh, if you don't have the ability to do that right now, you can also do a la carte and just add one book at a time. And as your library grows, uh, it will do what it does and bring that and show it show you where the fathers have interfaced with Scripture and help you dig deeper in to this tradition of the church. Uh, they also, every month, they've got a free book uh, that you can add to your library and lots of deep discounts. Uh, there's lots of different ways to get into Verbum, but however you do, it's worth it. And there are other ways to engage with the fathers. Um, Dr. Marcellino D'Ambrosio, who we've had on the show several times, has his website, uh, Crossroads Initiative, that has a number of, of brief passages from the fathers that are worth looking at. Some of those are from the breviary, some are from other places. Um there, he has several books in his own right, as does our guest today, uh, Mike Aquilina, who really brings the church fathers to life for us today. And this, I think, is the strength of looking back uh, in order to go forward. Uh, the strength of that is it helps us see outside of our own framework. Our perspective, if that's the only one that we rely on, is only going to give us so much information right? We are, we're the fish in the water. And as long as we are in the water, um, we're going to think that the water is all that exists. And so our creativity to handle difficult situations is going to be limited to that scope of perspective that we have in front of us. And even here in, as we are relying on one another, uh, we are still all in this same soup together. Uh, we're all in this this time frame, this perspective, this cultural perspective, uh, 
even as our opinions may be different, even as our, our ideas of how to handle a situation may be different, we are still very much a product of our culture. This is one of the strengths of going back to the church fathers is that they break us out of our own perspective and show us a perspective that is radically different. And so in those places where we can see our perspectives align, there's some strength in that. We can say, okay, this, it's been this way for a very long time. This has a higher likelihood of being tradition than uh, and something that is sacred and needs to be maintained than something that uh, that we might disagree on with the fathers, right? Because the fathers have a very similar, if not the same perspective that those who first heard the words of Scripture would have. They, even though they um, they span a certain amount of time, they come from a cultural perspective that is very similar to that first century perspective, to the point that we give some extra weight to the opinion of the fathers, even over and above the doctors of the church and other profound teachers of, of our faith, because of this question of perspective. So as we begin to reimagine, as we look at uh, at our structures and our forms and the way that we are being church, it would be very good for us to go back and to look to the fathers. One of the things the fathers can do for us is they can show us how to be a church in the midst of opposition. And uh, as, as things have come about where economically it's difficult as the church, we've seen, um, we've seen parishes cut back, we've seen some parishes close, we've seen hospitals trying to decide whether or not they can continue to be Catholic hospitals in light of regulations um, that, that are imposed upon them. And so we see... A, a lot of loss of prestige. We see potentially loss of of infrastructure, and that becomes a thing that kind of ties us up. And we're like, well, how how can we be the church uh, in the absence of these things? And the answer to that is back in the fathers. We can be a church, and we can do the things that the church has always done, um, even if these uh, these extremes occur. Now, of course, we want to do everything we can to maintain that and to uh, to keep the strength of our efforts to serve the world. But even in the absence of those things, even if all of those things were taken away, we still have the opportunity to be the church. You've heard the phrase, uh, it comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new. Uh, and so as we are facing some things that feel to us to be unprecedented, the truth of the matter is, is that we as a society, uh, we as a people, we as a church, uh, have gone through similar things before. And so, you know, sometimes creativity means taking what we did before and uh, and modifying it to, to fit our current situation. In some ways, it, it could be a little bit like Apollo 13 and the, the situation of Apollo 13, where they had, uh, they, they lost a filter and they were going to need this filter to be able to survive. And they had another filter, right? It just didn't fit. And so they had to find a way to use the filter from before uh, in such a way that it would preserve their lives. And so for us, we need to go back to the fathers and find the filter and then find the way to make it work for us today. We're talking today with Mike Aquilina, 
Uh, he is the, a Catholic author, speaker, poet, and songwriter who serves as, as the executive vice president of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. Uh, he's got so many other credits to his name, but one of the things I want to point out is he has a, a podcast called The Way of the Fathers that drops twice monthly at catholicculture.org, and I encourage you to check that out. Uh, Mike, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me on. So you are a prolific writer. Uh, just, uh, I get press releases and books from publishers, and your name comes across my desk so often. And I've I've always said, oh, that's an interesting book. I want to read that. I want to have them on the show. And it just things haven't worked out for me to, to pull the trigger until um, you have recently on your Facebook been talking about the the work that you've done with a songwriter, Dion, which just kind of took me out of my um, my preconceptions for a moment. And then the the one that just really finally did it was you have this new book of poetry called The Invention of Zero, An Accumulation of Poems, uh, which you can get on catholicbooksdirect.com. Um, and that just kind of finally shook loose all the preconceptions I had. And, and I got to thinking about why that was. Uh, we tend to compartmentalize our our understanding of the world. So we have over here patristics, which is one of your specialities. Uh, and patristics we put in this category of a certain kind of uh, academic, which has a certain picture along with it of uh, ceiling high book bookshelves and leather high back chairs, and of course that's what what we're looking at right now on the on the video. Um, but then on the other side we have uh, poetry, and when we think about poetry, we have this completely different picture that we associate with ourselves. Um, and so to see them residing together, someone who's written as many books as you have. Uh, to also be involved in songwriting and poetry was just the kind of thing that I needed to um, to say, hey, this is a conversation worth having. And specifically right now it's worth having because we've been talking about reimagining a post-quarantine church. And one of the things that very often we should do instead of looking forward to what that might be is to look backwards and to say, how have we weathered these things in the past? Uh and for the patristics and for those who have gone before us in the church, we didn't see this compartmentalization. No. And there's some safety, I think, in figuring out how to handle things now by looking at how the church has handled it in the past. So talk a little bit about your interests in this area and how they have uh, really kind of strengthened one another, how, how patristics and poetry, how studies and stanzas uh, can strengthen one another. I, I, I don't know uh, that I've ever thought about the relationship between my varied interests. I think most people have a variety of interests. They mix it up. They, they're easily distracted by one thing and they, they make their living at another. Uh, and, and they just let them let their mind go where, where it needs to go. Now, uh, often these things don't come out in the public. It's one of the glories of social media that we see these things yeah, all at once in someone's feed, uh, in someone's uh, uh, you know page, and and so so I guess that's become more visible with me. But uh, you know, I know that a lot of the people I work with in the field of uh, in in the field of of um, uh, apologetics or or history, popular history, that sort of thing, uh, played in garage bands as kids. <laughs> You know, and we were listening to the same 
the same records. And, uh, and, and most of them, if they played in high school, they still play today. They play for their family and every now and then they might even show up with a local, local band or that sort of thing. So I think it's, I think it's fairly common and I think it's always been fairly common uh, to be a, a cultured person is to, to have a hand in music, to have a hand in poetry, um, and to, to have, have a hand in the history of your own people. You know, I have a hand in music. I, I, before we were Catholic, I spent time in the Protestant church as a, a musician. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but my work doesn't show up on, you know, Grammy award-winning albums. So talk, talk a little bit about this relationship that you have with Dion and how you got to a place where, uh, where you were collaborating with him. Well, you know, I guess I knew, I, I met Dion in Italy uh, quite a while ago, uh, many years ago, and, uh, and, and we struck up a friendship. And he lives not far from my brother in Florida. So whenever I visited my brother, I'd visit Dion too. We'd get together and we talked on the phone a lot. Uh, I think it was in 2009, uh, a publisher was, was after Dion to write a memoir. And, uh, and he said, well, I'll do it if I can, if I can co-author it with a friend of mine. So I ended up working on his memoir with them, and that's uh, The Wanderer Talks Truth. Um, so uh, we, we worked on the memoir, and then shortly after the memoir, one day he called me on the phone, and he left, well, I actually left a message on my machine. He said, um, he said, I read it in the Rolling Stone. I read it in the Rolling Stone. I want to sing that line in a song, and you're going to write that song. <laughs> so, I mean, he knew what he was doing. He was kind of throwing down a challenge. He wanted to see what I could do. So mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, it's this machismo thing. So I, I took up the challenge, and I wrote, I wrote a piece, and he loved it. You know, so he, the next morning he called me, and he said, I want to do a song about Robert Johnson. Show me what you can do. <laughs> you know, so I did that, and um, and he was in the middle of recording an album at the time, and it was supposed to be an album of covers, and he decided to make it an album of originals, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, we we worked on that album together. It's called Tank Full of Blues, uh, and so far, you know, in the last eleven years or so, we've worked on three albums together: Tank Full of Blues, New York is My Home, and Blues with Friends. So. Uh, so it just kind of happened by by accident. Uh, it happened just kind of grew naturally out of our friendship. Um, and yeah, and I, I love that because so often um, we look at the relationships around us as relationships of utility, uh, mm-hmm. and I think we miss out on these kinds of opportunities when we're always saying, "Well, how is this relationship going to to really affect my life?" And how you know, kind of parsing out and planning ahead of time. And I think we do that in a lot of areas, uh, specifically in the relationships we have, but then also in the ways that the paths that we wander down uh, in in life. In specifically, I think this quarantine gives us an, a good opportunity to reevaluate those things and say, how are yeah. we going to interact with one another? How are we going to be um, in society? And how are we going to be as a church? We're talking today with Mike Aquilina on. Uh, Catholic author, speaker, poet, and much more. Uh, you can find his works uh, really all over the place. Amazon Catholic Books Direct is the one I'd recommend. Uh, you can also find him at fathersofthechurch.org, uh, I think. Dot com. Dot com. Yeah, I, you know, it's a 50-50 chance most of the time, and I, I got that wrong. <laughs> um, so I want to go back to this idea, Mike, of 
what we can, how, how patristics and poetry can, can really strengthen us. And I'm thinking back to the poetry of, um, of Teresa of Avila. I've got this lovely mirror in our home that my wife painted. Um, let nothing disturb you. Let nothing uh, disquiet you, right? Uh, all things are passing. God is unchanging. Well, it, it doesn't seem very poetic to us. It seems like these lines, but in, in the original language, it was most definitely a poem. Uh, we have the same thing throughout scripture. We have the same thing in the patristics that there is a power in poetry um, that, that breaks through some of the noise. And I feel like a lot of times we've modern ears have lost that. We've, we've thought, well, Hey, the way to do it is to have a persuasive argument. Yeah. Yes. The, the way to do it is to have our, our have our apologetics be, um, just this really tight, firm case that we're going to argue through and, and the other person's going to have to acquiesce because our argument's stronger. And this isn't the way the church has done it in the past, and I don't think that it's the way forward for us today. You have a book about this, which I'm, <laughs> I love the title, and I want to know if you had a hand in the title, How the Choir Converted the World Through Hymns, With Hymns, and In Hymns. <laughs> I did indeed. As a matter of fact, the title I proposed was Through Hymns with Hymns and Hymns. <laughs> and the compromise was that that can be the subtitle. <laughs> so so let's talk about, um, I come from a, a Methodist tradition and hymns played a really important role in that with uh, Charles Wesley was one of the founders of, of Methodism and he wrote 5,000 hymns over his life. Uh, and, and those were um, very instructional and catechetical. Um, but yeah. let's come and bring it out of that Protestant world and talk about the importance of the choir in the Catholic world. Well, I think, I think you're right when you say that, that today we, we lean too much on utility. You know, we want things to be useful. We want everything to be businesslike and we want to be efficient. You know, so we think of poetry as something that's wasteful, mm -hmm. uh, something that's a, a, little, a little bit too prodigal for us. Um, but you know what? Our religion is all about poetry. More than more than a third of the Old Testament is written in verse, okay? And quite a bit of the New Testament, too. We have, we have the Magnificat. We have the Nunc Dimittis. We have all those wonderful hymns in the book of Revelation, many of which have been set to music, which we sing at Mass. We have St. Paul referring to, to psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So Christianity has always been a poetic religion, you know? And, the, and this is true going into the time of the Church Fathers, Again, we look at the church fathers for their utility. We want to know what are they going to prove for us? What are they going to demonstrate for us in my apologetic argument? How are they going to show the development of this doctrine or that dogma? And the fathers were all about poetry, really. You know, they wanted to accomplish certain things with their congregations. They wanted to delight them, right? Imagine that. They wanted to aid their memory, right? And they wanted to inspire them to higher thought. What does this in the most efficient and memorable way? If you want to be useful about it, it's poetry, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so the fathers wrote poetry to convey the doctrines of the church. And, and I maintain in my book uh, that poetry was the way, the primary way that the fathers got their message out. It wasn't by writing treatises. It wasn't by making academic studies of, of various doctrines. They, they didn't do a whole lot of that. They were pastors. What they did was sing songs with their congregations. The congregations went home whistling the music, 
and the words stayed in their head. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, advertisers know this, right? Yeah. Pop songwriters know this. If you want to get an idea across most effectively, you put it to music. You know, the mm-hmm. ad jingle that will not leave your head, the obnoxious song, the earworm that gets in there and stays and you wish it would go away. It delivers a message to your brain and that message will not go away. Well, you know, the message was Jesus Christ for them, you know, and that was the most glorious earworm. It converted the Western world. Often the biggest complaint about, um, about the, uh, the biggest complaint that comes from the fathers of the church is that the heretics were writing better music than they were. Mm-hmm. You know, you find this in Ephraim, you find this in, um, in uh, Hillary, you find this in Ambrose, and, and they, they, they countered that good music from the heretics with better music from the Catholics. And that's how they won that battle against heresy. You know, Ambrose did it by putting uh, a, 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 a verse of doxology, Trinitarian doxology, at the end of every hymn. And we still do that today. That's the most effective way of delivering the doctrine, getting it home. Mm-hmm. You know, there's going back to this idea of um, the ways that the patristics did it, there's a sense of imagination that they had that very often I think that our utility lacks. Uh, even in their their reading of the census of scripture, and they getting into the typology, you'll be reading through the fathers, and and they'll say, "Well, of course, this thing in the scripture relates to this other thing over here." And I'm thinking, you know, that's that's a little bit of a stretch to my analytical mind, and yet the truth that they conveyed through that sense of scripture, through that reading of it in the moment, um, which required that imagination and that inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's something that if we are not open to using our imaginations, we can miss out on. And I think it's so essential that we reclaim in these days is that that reading of scripture that's directly applicable to the things that are around us. Absolutely. And, you know, we work that way anyway. You know, we might deny it. We might say, you know, we're all about just the literal sense of things. Uh, you know, uh, what you see is what you get and all of that. But we're symbol-making beasts, you know. We're the ones who keep doing these little heart emoticons and putting them up there. You know, if there is a significance to the heart that relates to love, that relates to affections, that relates to delight, it's because we give it that significance, you know. The heart does not have that significance by nature, you know. Mm-hmm. And we do that with so many other things, with 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 flowers. You know, I look at my window, I see the mountains. All of these things symbolize something, right? They symbolize something and uh and and that's 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 what we we were that's that's what God made us to do. That's what God made us to see. And the Bible reads reality in that way, it reads history in that way. It reads creation in that way. And and it works with the way humans are made because it was inspired by the one who created humans. We're talking today with Mike Aquilina. He's a Catholic author, speaker, poet, songwriter, and so much more. He's also the vice president of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. And there is much more to our conversation right after the break, so don't go anywhere. Do join the ongoing conversation on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. Come and talk to us about your varied interests and hobbies. I want to know about them. There's much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We're talking today with Mike Aquilina. Uh, he is a Catholic author, speaker, poet, songwriter, uh, who serves as the executive vice president of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. And that's kind of the whole thing we're talking about today, that the the integration of our uh, our pursuits— as an individual and also as a church, as we're looking for how do we get out of this uh, slump that we're in as we have been trying to figure out the uh, the quarantine and how to do church in that way. Well, this is not a new situation for us. The church has gone through quarantines before, but more than that, um, the church has gone through not being able to meet in the same ways that we are accustomed to meeting the church from its very inception, from the very beginning. And so there's so much creativity for us as we look forward to see how we are going to be after this quarantine by looking back and seeing how the church has done this over and over again in the past. Uh, Mike, thank you for joining us. You're, you're a, a, a preeminent patristic writer, and we're so glad to have you here on the show. I'm happy to be here and having a good time. So not only are you um, prolific in your in your writing, but you write a lot about the early church. And there's one series that's in in progress right now that I, I would just want to point out to everybody, of course, that you can get it on catholicbooksdirect.com. Uh, and that is the Re- Reclaiming Catholic History series, which is in progress. Right now, you've got four volumes out there, some other ones that are coming out, starting in the early church, going through the Roman Empire, the Middle Ages, and even the modern era. You've got a couple of little holes to fill in that'll be coming here soon. Talk a little bit about um, what brought you into this specific series as opposed to the other books that you have done uh, one at a time. Just this whole comprehensive view of church history. Why now? Well, uh, why now is the the question I'll begin with. Uh, I think it's because... uh, we're taught a version of history that's not exactly true. There is kind of a meta-narrative uh, to uh, the American story, for example, that, uh, that, that really forms us as Protestants, okay? So there are remnants of the, the black legend against Spaniards and other, mm-hmm. other swarthy Mediterraneans like myself, um, and, and they tend to be villainized. Um, and, uh, and it's a certain... It's a certain way of, uh, of, of understanding history, that's a misunderstanding. And so we need to know our own story as Catholics. We need to know how we're different. We need to know what really happened and, uh, and, uh, and what our side of the story is. For example, of the Reformation, of the Crusades, of a lot of things that are, are really being uh, portrayed in, in ways that aren't quite true these days. So, I, I mean, the, the area of interest that I've always had is the early church. And so I've written a lot about the early church. I'm not trained as a historian. I, I consider myself to be a journalist whose beat is the first five centuries of the church's history. And I have a good time doing that. And I think I can communicate with ordinary people, people who aren't academic historians. That's what I try to do. And because I've tried to do that, um, uh, Ave Maria Press has um, has asked me to put together a series uh, produced by writers like me, you know, mm-hmm. who can communicate with ordinary people. A good number of them are academic historians, but they're also excellent writers. So they can tell a good story and they can convey the truth of of 
of any period of their part, well, of their particular period in history, uh, and also counter a lot of the misinformation and urban legends that are out there in circulation and even in high school and college textbooks. Mm-hmm. Well, and history is always told from the perspective of, well, from a perspective, but typically from the perspective of the winner, as it were. Uh, and so, the, the, of course, the winner in in the foundations of this country were, were those who were coming here to exercise their religious freedom, but that was oftentimes at the expense of of those who would have Catholicism or Anglicanism that weren't who were no longer welcome here. Uh, and so the Catholic story here in America is a a hard fought one that in many ways is characterized and punctuated by, hey, take a look at us. We're we're not that different than you. Right? Yeah. And and I think that that affects the way that we practice our Catholicism even as it is uh, cautious and and oh look it, it, we're we're not that strange it's okay yep. you don't have to persecute us and yep. I think that maybe it's time to reclaim some of that strangeness because it's yep. that strangeness that I think is attractive uh, to the world that's looking for something that's different. Absolutely, you know, in my own state there were in well in colonial times in Pennsylvania there were laws on the books against assembly by Catholics, all right? We could not meet to worship in colonial times, even though Pennsylvania was founded by William Penn on the principle of religious freedom that did not last more than a generation. So, so there, there is that already. And, uh, and it continued into the, into the, the 19th century uh, when, uh, when there were no-nothing riots in my own city. There were no-nothing riots all, all through the East. Um, and these specifically targeted Catholics and, and especially immigrant Catholics. So, I mean, this has always been part of our story, and we continue to hear it today. You know, when uh, when you know a, a, a senator uh, will 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 ask will ask a, a candidate for for a, a judicial seat. Uh, you know, if if membership in the Knights of Columbus might preclude him from such a position. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's that's the kind of tradition we come from in America. It's a strange, strange bigotry that that will not recognize its bigotry. Right. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, and, you know, it's been called the last acceptable prejudice. It was called that 50 years ago, and yet it's a prejudice that endures. And unless you you kind of tell the story, you're not even going to recognize it as a prejudice. It's just reality. It's just morality for for the the, the dominant population here. Well, I think it's so important that that we recognize our story because this is our heritage. Yes. Uh, it's not a bad thing to explore and learn other stories uh, mm-hmm. because that I think the more of history that we see and the more perspectives that we see, the greater depth that we have. But it's so important that we don't neglect our own. So this this series, uh, Reclaiming Catholic History, Ave Maria Press, uh, you had your hand, as, I can, as far as I can tell, on all of them. Um, and I, I just can't recommend it enough. I know a lot of parents right now are faced with the, uh, the real possibility of having to homeschool. Uh, this is a great book for you just to kind of supplement a little bit of the history for your kids uh, in really accessible ways and give them our story, the story of our faith, the story of, of Catholicism worldwide, writ large, whole large overview it, I highly encourage it. And of course you can get it over at catholicbooksdirect.com. 
Um, you mentioned earlier that so much of the church is written in poetry. So much of the scripture is written in poetry. Mm-hmm. And going back to this idea of, as a church, reclaiming the arts in, during this time and reclaiming uh, poetry, I want to direct uh, to your book, A Joyful Noise, Praying the Psalms with the Early Church. Because even today, the Liturgy of the Hours, which um, priests and deacons and religious and some lay pray all over the world, uh, this is the prayer of the church. This is the way that we pray today. It's the way we've always prayed. Um, the collects that you hear in Mass, all of these prayers are exceptionally poetic and exceptionally beautiful. And if we take the time to focus on them and and to really pay attention to them, they do have this amazing power to inform us and strengthen us uh, in both our spirit and our intellect. So talk a little bit about this book and and how, by reclaiming and praying with the church, um, we can expand our, our faith. Well, joyful no- noise I, I wrote because the um, the Psalms are are the uh, the book of the Bible, the book of the Old Testament, uh, most often quoted by the fathers. And actually, they're the, they're the book of the the Old Testament that's most often quoted in the New Testament. Psalms are the the the, the book of Psalms is the biggest book uh, in the Bible, and uh, it was the earliest book to have a commentary. Uh, in 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 the time of the fathers, and uh, and the commentary that Augustine produced is one of his greatest and most quoted works. So the Psalms have been tremendously important in the history of Christianity and in the history of Judaism as well. Uh, you know, our Lord Himself was steeped in the music of the Psalms. These were the lines that were running through His head and in through the heads of His listeners at that time, and He knew that, and He tried to connect with them through the Psalms. So, so yes, uh, the, the Psalms are, are an important part of our heritage. Uh, they're there for us to sing, and we do sing. St. Basil the Great, in his, his first uh, homily on the Psalms, has a great, a great passage where he says, I know when, you're, when you go home, you'll already have forgotten my homily. You'll already have forgotten so much about this liturgy, but you'll go home singing the Psalm because it has a melody. And because it has this poetic parallelism that makes it easy to remember. That's the thing about poetry is that it has these mnemonic devices that, uh, that make things memorable and memorizable. So you can, you can kind of hang them in your memory and they'll be there for you forever. Like the, the, the poem by St. Teresa of Avila that you mentioned earlier. You know, obviously, these are modeled on the Psalms. All Christian poetry, in some sense, is modeled on the Psalms. Uh, so it's there to be imitated as well as sung. And, uh, and that's what all the great Christian, Christian authors know, knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I think of, of poetry and I, and I try to uh, infuse the family with it. Um, yeah. But we had this, this great experience when we were in uh, at St. Peter and Paul parish in, uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma this group of families got together for what they called a bard night. And uh, it was basically an excuse to have a potluck, but this was not your ordinary potluck, right? People were bringing their handcrafted cheeses and, and uh, home brews and everything else. And the rule was you're, we're going to bring food and then you have to also bring a poem or 
a um, or a song or your favorite piece of culture, and you have to stand up in this circle and recite it. And we're going to go and, and we're going to share our favorite bits of culture and our favorite bits of food with one another. We turned the lights down low and it was one of the, we only did, I, we were only there for one of them, but it's still one of my favorite memories uh, of, of a church gathering was this sharing of culture together. This is the way culture should be passed on within the home and among friends. This is the way things happened until very recently Uh, the days when we have mass media now. So we have a few people kind of dictating what culture will be for Mm -hmm. Americans. And we have this absurd idea that America, this vast land with 300 million people and how many square miles should have a uniform culture. This is insane, okay? That we should all be listening to the same music, that we should all enjoy the same poetry, although poetry doesn't really appear in the equation at all. Through most of history, this was simply passed on in the context of the family. And uh, we, but the modern era has produced this professionalization of delight that you're not really a musician unless you're certified as a musician. Where are your degrees, buddy? You know, you're not really a poet unless you're certified as a poet. Where did you get your MFA? You know, Uh, all these crazy ideas that we have now about what makes good art. What makes good art is that, you know, very rich people buy it or that, uh, that, um, that, uh, that some group of academics kind of stroked their chin and nodded in the right place and then signed at the end of the PhD. This is crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got to break away from this and just get into the art ourselves, read poems, read them aloud, read them within the context of the family so that we recover delight on our own terms and not have it dictated to us by any kind of mass media or mass culture. Uh, This is something that I feel very strongly about. And there's so many ways we can overcome it. Um, I I once heard about um, a homeschooling family the, this mom was wanted her children to be exposed to poetry, and she knew that it wasn't going to happen by accident, okay? So every morning what she did was she would write out a poem on a big sheet of paper and put it, out, put it down on their dining room table. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? Put that there on the... Uh, on, on, the, on the paper, the kids could not read, but she could read it to them mm-hmm. and then say, I want you to, to draw pictures to match the words. So draw a picture of a tiger up there by the word tiger, right? Yeah. And so as the kids, you know, throughout that day, then they would return to the poem in different ways. They would always recite it, but they would draw pictures and color them and that sort of thing. And by the end, the end of the day, they had a certain mastery of that poem, and that poem had worked its magic on them. The next day, they went to a different poem. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I think it's a beautiful way, again, to bring it on home, to, uh, to make culture our own once again. So we have a little bit of a dilemma here. One, we're, we're among friends, right? We're having this conversation, and this is the way we, we share uh, culture. But two, this is also kind of mass media as we're on the on the air. But I wonder if you would take a poem out of your new bu- your new book, The Invention of Zero, uh, and share with us one of these poems that that you have crafted. 
Okay, well, I'll read the title poem because it's on the back cover and that's easy to do. It's in large print on the back cover, so, so I can do that. The Invention of Zero. In ages past, I could not have expressed numerically your difference from the rest of everything encountered here below, of everything that's made ex nihilo. From Antioch and Rome, there came no sign to mark the place beside the number line. A city could produce an epic hero, but not a jot to represent a zero. In India, the mathematicians found the notion that we render in the round. They registered as first to hold the thought of what should stand when all has come to naught. From nothing, all is made and nothing lasts. It's striking now how everything contrasts with you, as if the world were binary and you the only one, at least for me. How wonderful. Mike Aquilina's new book and volume of poetry, The Invention of Zero, you can get that on catholicbooksdirect.com. Thank you so much for joining us and talking about patristics and poetry and the integration of our faith and our life. Hey, thank you for having me. If you missed any part of my conversation with Mike Aquilina or you want to go back, uh, listen to it again, share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And as always, there is an extra segment available to all those who support the show through Patreon. Uh, But, you know, the extra segment this week was so great, uh, a lot of fun, that I want to share it with everybody. If you've been kind of on the fence about whether or not you wanted to be a patron, uh, whether or not these extra segments were worth it, go listen to this little bit with uh, with Mike Aquilina. You will not be disappointed. You can get to it by going to OutsideTheWalls.com and then up in the top right-hand corner, you can't see it, but I'm pointing at it. Up in the top right-hand corner of the page, there is a little link there that says Patreon, support the show. Click that link and that, that uh, post will be right up there at the top in an extra 15 minutes or so of conversation. Now it's time to turn our attention to our reading from scripture and from church history. And that's the sound of our Verbum Library launching up. And as Mike Aquilina talked about, so much of the Old Testament is poetry. So we're going to read a little bit of poetry here today from the Responsorial Psalm, Psalm 107. Give thanks to the Lord. His love is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say, those whom he has redeemed from the hand of the foe and gathered from the lands, from the east and the west, from the north and the south. Give thanks to the Lord. His love is everlasting. They went astray in the desert wilderness. The way to an inhabited city they did not find. Hungry and thirsty, their life was wasting away within them. Give thanks to the Lord. His love is everlasting. They cried to the Lord in their distress. From their straits, he rescued them, and he led them by a direct way to reach an inhabited city. Give thanks to the Lord. His love is everlasting. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his mercy and his wondrous deeds to the children of men, because he satisfied the longing soul and filled the hungry soul with good things. 
Give thanks to the Lord. His love is everlasting. That reading comes from Psalm 107, which the liturgy this week uses as one of the responsorial psalms. Now, I'd be curious, as you heard that responsorial psalm, uh, that we're going to test a theory from, uh, from Mike Aquilina. As you heard the words to that, that psalm, did you associate any music with it? Not necessarily the, the cadence of the words, but do you know a responsorial psalm for, for that specific one? I do. If I thought about it for a while, I might be able to think up uh, a couple of extra that I have heard. But there's one that sticks out that, uh, that my parish has done many times over every time this comes up. And so um, there's a couple of things with this. One, when I hear the melody, and I now I'm going to be singing that melody the rest of the day because it, it, it's come up in this conversation. Uh, but now every time I hear that little earworm, every time that that song kind of plays over in my head, what goes along with it? Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love is everlasting. And just to marinate in that throughout the day and have that be the thing that directs our attention and our perspective and everything that comes and we face throughout the day, uh, we can face it with the eyes of give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love is everlasting. And we have to say, okay, this is a really difficult situation. So I need to view it through the lens of give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And I need to look for the goodness of the Lord here in the midst of this really difficult situation rather than just facing difficult situations and going, oh my goodness, I'm being cursed and I this is awful. And uh, we begin by uh, giving ourselves these psalms, by giving ourselves this poetry, we give ourselves the framework and the lenses through which to view both the good and the bad, both the joy and the hardship. Lastly, our reading from church history today comes from a homily on Matthew, on the Gospel of Matthew by St. John Chrysostom. You are the salt of the earth. It is not for your own sake, he says, but for the world's sake that the world is entrusted to you. I am not sending you into two cities only, or ten or twenty, not to a single nation, as I sent the prophets of old, but across the land and sea to the whole world. And that world is in a miserable state. For when he says, you are the salt of the earth, he is indicating that all mankind has lost its savor and has been corrupted by sin. Therefore, he requires of these men those virtues which are especially useful and even necessary if they are to bear the burdens of many. For the man who is kindly, modest, merciful, and just, will not keep his good works to himself, but will see to it that these admirable fountains send out their streams for the good of others. Again, the man who is clean of heart, a peacemaker, and ardent for truth, will order his life so as to contribute to the common good. Do not think, he says, that you are destined for easy struggles or unimportant tasks. You are the salt of the earth. 
What do these words imply? Did the disciples restore what had already turned rotten? Not at all. Salt cannot help what is already corrupted. That's not what they did. But what had first been renewed and freed from corruption and then turned over to them, they salted and preserved in the newness the Lord had bestowed. It took the power of Christ to free men from corruption caused by sin. It was the task of the apostles, through strenuous labor, to keep that corruption from returning. Have you noticed how bit by bit Christ shows them to be superior to the prophets? He says they are to be teachers, not simply for Palestine, but for the whole world. Do not be surprised then, he says, that I address you apart from the others and involve you in such a dangerous enterprise. Consider the numerous and extensive cities, peoples, and nations I will be sending you to govern. For this reason, I would have you make others prudent, as well as being prudent yourselves. For unless you can do that, you will not be able to sustain even yourselves. If others lose their savor, then your ministry will help them regain it. But if you yourselves suffer that loss, you will drag others down with you. Therefore, the greater the undertakings put into your hands, the more zealous you must be. For this reason, he says, but if the salt becomes tasteless, how can its flavor be restored? It is good for nothing now but to be thrown out and trampled by men's feet. When they hear these words, when they curse you and persecute you and accuse you of every evil, they may be afraid to come forward. Therefore, he says, Unless you are prepared for that sort of thing, it is in vain that I have chosen you. Curses shall necessarily be your lot, but they shall not harm you, and will simply be a testimony to your constancy. If, through fear, however, you fail to show the forcefulness your mission demands, your lot will be much worse. For all will speak evil of you and despise you. That is what being trampled by men's feet means. Then he passed on to a more exalted comparison. You are the light of the world. Once again, of the world, not of one nation or 20 cities, but the whole world. The light, he means, is an intelligible light, far superior to the rays of the sun we see, just as salt is a spiritual salt. First salt, then light, so that you may learn how profitable sharp words may be and how useful serious doctrine. Such teaching holds in check and prevents dissipation. It leads to virtue and sharpens the mind's eye. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a basket. Here again, he is urging them to a careful manner of life and teaching them to be watchful, for they live under the eyes of all and have the whole world for the arena of their struggles. That reading comes from a homily on Matthew by St. John Chrysostom, and that's all the time we have for today. Today's show is brought to you by Brandy Carey, Carrie Carlson, and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link, and join their numbers. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace.